Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello, you're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, will Emmanuel Macron win a second term as president or will challenges from the left, the right and even the far right end his five years in office? We'll talk to Lara Marlowe of the Irish Times to look at the big issues that are shaping the race to lead the EU's biggest military power and its second largest economy. And WTF are NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are digital assets that represent real-world objects from art to designer sneakers. Bought and sold online with cryptocurrencies, we'll be joined from London by Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and a communicator specialising in digital culture, to demystify the latest celebrity culture craze for us all. And finally, the climate crisis has led many governments to make big policy shifts as we all need to start doing lots more to protect our environment and lead more sustainable lives. The fair trade movement says you have the power to drive long-term change in your shopping choices. We'll talk to its Ireland chief as Fair Trade Fortnight kicks off next week. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockNT. And first up today is Laura Marlowe, the Paris correspondent of the Irish Times. Laura is a respected observer of French politics and she's going to give us her take on the key issues in the French presidential election. Laura, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Thank you, Mandy. This is a very strange election. I've covered um, every French election since uh, the mid-90s, and I've never seen one like this. There are, in fact, very few issues. Um, President Macron has busied himself with foreign policy. As you know, he was mediating between the Russians and Ukrainians quite recently. Uh, He's made a lot of public appearances in the framework of France's rotating presidency of the EU. So he's mainly concentrating on foreign policy, and he hasn't even declared himself a candidate for re-election, although he has to do that uh, before the end of the first week in March. Uh, And the strategy is actually working for him because all of his rivals are just fighting each other. You have uh, really nasty battles on the left uh, between the socialists, the Greens, the far left, which is called France Unbowed, the communist, uh, a break-off socialist candidate. And they're all tearing each other apart and, and basically discrediting each other. And on the right, you have the same phenomenon uh, where you have a conservative candidate called Valérie Pécresse, uh, who was tied for second place with the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen. Uh, And then there's a a third man also from from very far right called Eric Zemmour. Um, Just uh, this week, uh, uh, just this week, one of Marine Le Pen's top lieutenants, a man called Nicolas Bay, who's an MEP, uh, and left her campaign to join Eric Zemmour's campaign. Uh, He is not the first one to do so, but Marine Le Pen got wind of this and called him a slug uh, and said he was slimy. (laughs) Um, She called it high treason sabotage and actually uh, 
Nicolas Bay is not the first man to leave Le Pen's campaign. Another uh, MEP from the far right, from her party, which is called the Rassemblement National, uh, also went over to Zemmour's campaign. And so it's, it's just this sort of free-for-all. Um, Valérie Pécresse doesn't trust Nicolas Sarkozy, the former president, because he's refused to endorse her, even though she's from his party. And now her people are keeping a very close eye on the, the Sarkozyists in her campaign. She's also lost three or four top people from her party who've gone over to, uh, to Macron. So, so there's this big sort of shuffle going on of, of supporters. And another big issue is whether or not the candidates will get their 500 signatures from elected officials. To have your name on the ballot in the French presidential election, you have to have 500 mayors sign uh, a paper saying that you are qualified to stand for president. And a lot of the smaller candidates and even some of the big candidates like Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour are having great difficulty giving, getting 500 mayors to put their names to their candidacy. Mm. So, so far, the, the campaign has been dominated by this sort of thing. I mean, there are issues. Uh, purchasing power is, is a big issue because inflation is very high in France, as it is in, in all Western countries at the moment. Um, but nobody's really talking about that. So, so too, is uh, the climate, climate change ought to be a big issue, but nobody's really talking about that either. Yeah, as you say, it's a, it's a very complex political matrix that is presiding over these elections. And as you say, you've been following it since the 90s. Can we, can we just um, start with Macron, please? As you said, he hasn't declared yet, but he will seek a second term as president. How has his presidency been? He promised so much in 2017. Um, did he deliver as a president or did he disappoint? It depends if you see the glass half full or half empty. Uh, I think he's had a crisis presidency very early on. He had a big crisis when one of his bodyguards was filmed beating up demonstrators. Uh, then he had the Gilets Jaunes. You remember mm -hmm. the, the protesters over a carbon tax. And that went on for a very long time throughout the winter of 2018-19. Actually, it only really ended when the, the COVID pandemic started. And that that was very frightening for a lot of people. I mean, there were days when it felt like France was really in revolution and, and one wondered what would happen next. I mean, I had burning rubbish bins and broken glass on my street. Uh, Macron was hanged in effigy. He managed to turn that around mm. mainly through his rhetorical skills. He started what he called a, a great debate, a national debate, and he went all over France having town hall meetings and listening to people's grievances, sometimes for seven or eight hours. And he, he really did a very good job of, of, of turning that around. Um, and then the pandemic, of course, mm -hmm. has, has been a huge crisis. And polls show that more than half of French people, a majority of French people, believe he has handled the pandemic well and that that has turned out to be an advantage for him in his re-election campaign. I think his biggest advantage is actually the weakness of his rivals. Uh, Valérie Pécresse gave her first big campaign rally on uh, Sunday, the 13th of February, and it was a total flop. She was dreadful. Yes, uh, I read you your piece on that um, during the week was very interesting. Um, just, just sticking with Macron for, for one moment there, um, 
as you mentioned, COVID interrupted his big promised reforms um, and he's, mm-hmm. he's perceived to have done quite well in dealing with the pandemic and hopefully that will help him. Um, what about those reforms, Lara? Did he actually introduce any of the reforms that he promised in 2017? Some of them. He mm-hmm. reformed unemployment insurance. He did not do what is considered the mother of all reforms in France, which is pension reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he tried. He started it, and there were huge transport strikes for months. That was uh, that was just before in the run up to the the pandemic, actually. So that that sort of failed. I I think he's given a lot of credit for his handling of European issues. Uh, a few months after he was elected in September of 2017, he made a speech at the Sorbonne in which he proposed more than 50 new measures to help Europe become what he says, create a sovereign Europe. And quite a few of those measures have actually happened. It ranges from, say, defense committees to further integrate European defense to more Erasmus scholarships um, to uh, more coordination on immigration. I mean, there's just a so many a dizzying number of European reforms. But what he really gets credit for uh, is, again, the pandemic. But in mm. the European framework, he and Angela Merkel uh, launched this 750 billion euro recovery fund, uh, without which uh, a lot of European economies would be in dire straits. And it was also the first time that the EU, especially Germany, which was very adverse to it, agreed to shared debt. So that's seen as an enormous uh, progress, certainly by the French. I know the Germans were a bit uh, uncertain whether this could be a precedent, whether it could ever be repeated. Uh, the French say it is. Once, once they've done it, they want to keep doing it. Um, the other thing he did in the pandemic, and he didn't do it alone, the, the Commission and, and European partners helped, but I think Macron gave it a lot of impetus to it, was the European vaccination program. And he and his acolytes are very fond of of pointing out that per capita, more Europeans have been vaccinated than anywhere else in the world. And not only that, Europe has been very generous in sharing vaccines with Africa and the developing world. Uh, So he he gets credit for those two things in in the EU. And, And also, I think the French like to see their leaders on the world stage mm. and by, by going to Moscow and Kiev and, and making such a big deal of his mediation in, in the Ukraine crisis, uh, I think that also cast him in, in a good light as far as the French are concerned. Um, although a lot of people really dislike him, he, he is perceived to be the president of the rich, he's perceived to be arrogant. But his popularity ratings have remained relatively high for a French president. They, they have been between 30 and 40 percent, really, for the duration of his term. And he is somebody who can attract votes from the left and the right and present well on the world stage. Can I ask you um, about France's place on that geopolitical map post uh, Macron, look, in the era of Mitterrand and de Gaulle before him, France was seen as a very important player on the world stage. Is that still the case after Macron's leadership? I would say it is almost the case under Macron's leadership. But I think that if someone like Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour or even Valérie Pécresse uh, succeeded him, I think that would take a very 
big dent. Mm-hmm. I think that France's prestige and, and, and power would, would drop very dramatically. Um, so it, it only, it, it really goes with the leadership. And if you've got a strong leader in the Elysee, uh, then yes, France has influence. I mean, he, he's, he's very dynamic and energetic and forceful and to, forceful to the point of bullying other people sometimes. Although one thing, big improvement he's made, I, I heard a lot of European ambassadors complaining that he never consulted his allies, that he would just present things as a fait accompli and so on. And he seems to have got over that. I think he finally heard the message and, and he does consult other people now. Maybe in a post-Merkel Europe, he sees himself playing that more conciliatory role? Definitely. What he sees himself as the leader of Europe. And actually, he is. I mean, name anyone else who has the kind of stature that Macron has. Uh, Nobody does. I think he aspires to the kind of grandeur which uh, General Charles de Gaulle claimed to have uh, created for France. I, I don't think, I mean, the fact is France is now the seventh power in the world. When I first came here, I think it was fourth or fifth. Mm. So there is a French decline. Uh, for one thing, all, most of the industry has disappeared. It's left the country. It's been outsourced. Macron is trying to bring that back. Uh, he, he boasts that investment in France, foreign investment in France, has increased very dramatically under him. Uh, so he, he's doing a lot of things to try to improve the country. Uh, he's doing a lot of measures in the education system, for example. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. And if you just joined us, we're talking to Laura Marlowe of the Irish Times about the French presidential election. Laura, he seemed very almost personally aggrieved by that UK-US-Australia submarine um, Mm -hmm. deal, didn't he? He certainly did. Um, The French were very, very angry. They, They really took it as a betrayal. And they claim to be an Indo-Pacific power mm. because they have uh, overseas territories in the South Pacific. And there are, I think it's seven or 8,000 uh, French citizens living in that region. But frankly, um, they're not a Pacific power. Uh, and yes, they took it very hard. I think it was especially, there was a remark at the time from the foreign minister, Jean-Yves Le Drian, about the, the British being particularly perfidious. Mm. Um, I, I think they, they sort of, Australia is a long way away and uh, well, the Americans are a superpower. But France has a lot of defense cooperation from uh, the United Kingdom, even post-Brexit. Mm-hmm. And for the UK to be party to a secret agreement behind their back, that was that was really, really not on. I was, it was very badly received here in Paris. And actually, I know there's a, a new Australian ambassador within the last year or so. And I've heard, not from her, but from a, a, a third-party ambassador, that she is totally treated as a pariah by the French. They don't invite her to anything. And she's just really an outcast. Yeah, he withdrew the ambassador himself, didn't he? He did. I, I'm not sure if he's been sent back. Uh, the ambassador to the U.S. was also recalled, mm-hmm. but then eventually sent back to Washington. And that's a good question. Actually, the, the French ambassador to uh, Canberra 
was previously the French ambassador to Dublin. So a lot of your listeners would probably know him. He's called uh, Thibault, Jean-Pierre Thibault. So Lara, can we just go back to the wider campaign for a second and we could probably do an entire programme about Macron. Um, But I'm always struck by how complex French politics is and particularly French (laughs) campaigns. There are lots of candidates in the campaign and I'm always wondering, there's candidates in French elections which have absolutely no possibility of success, Mm. but can they influence the results or does it boil down to that? that There's a competition between heavyweights and what is the purpose of having so many candidates? I think it's it's probably seen as a democracy at work, Uh, but you're right. The first round, uh, which will take place on April 10th, is this sort of free-for-all with, um, I think it's about a dozen candidates that have to count them. And uh, some of them, like, for example, there's a Trotskyist candidate called Natalie Artaud. I see she's polling at 0.5%. Um, and I, I won't go through all the small candidates. I find the, the easiest way to sort of grapple with it is to look at them in descending order of poll performances. Mm-hmm. And uh, Emmanuel Macron is getting very consistently in all the polls 25% of the first round vote. Now, you might say well, only a quarter of the vote, that's not that good. But when you think that's out of um, a dozen or so candidates, it's very good. Mm. Uh, and the, the next, the second in rank, Marine Le Pen, is eight and a half percentage points behind him. I'm okay. looking at a poll that was published on Monday. Mm-hmm. And then she, she and Pécresse and Zemmour are in the same sort of pocket there in the mid-teens. Uh, and then it drops, when you get to the left-wing candidates, it drops down to 10%. So less than half, all of the left-wing candidates together do not poll uh, as much as Macron. So anyway, one of these people, it will be either probably uh, Pécresse, Le Pen, Zemmour. There's just the tiniest chance that if the left could actually um, throw their weight behind one candidate, which I doubt very seriously, but the far left candidate, Mélenchon, could just possibly squeak in to the runoff. So whoever comes in second on April 10th will then be standing alone against Macron on April 24th mm-hmm. in the runoff. And I, I think The Economist gives Macron a 79% chance of winning the runoff. Um, I would say it's probably a higher chance than that. He is very likely to be reelected. And I think that's one reason that the, that voters are fairly apathetic and that the campaign is, is just seem to be so chaotic and all over the place. Uh, it's because most people assume that Macron will be re-elected. But then, you know, we've had enormous surprises in the last few years. Donald Trump's election, mm-hmm. uh, Brexit, and that cannot be excluded. Uh, Macron, I have a friend who, who goes to Normandy every weekend, and she, she was telling me that she doesn't think Macron will be reelected because most of the people she meets out in the countryside really, really dislike him. Uh, and so I think it's very easy for people living in central Paris, which I have the privilege uh, of doing. It's very easy to only see the basically positive assessment of Macron. Uh, I remember in the last election in 2017, I went to polling stations all over Paris and I was looking for people who, who voted for Marine Le Pen in the runoff. 
and I couldn't find any. Mm. And I was surprised because she, she did get over 40% of the vote. And the, but Macron got more than 90% of the vote in Paris. He's very popular in the big cities, but he's disliked outside the big cities. So a, a surprise is not impossible. I think it's unlikely, but it could happen. So can I just get your views um, on the right and the far right? Indeed, as you mentioned there, Marianne Le Pen and her father before her used to completely dominate that space. But she's got competition this time. How are Le Pen and uh, the other candidates Zamor shaping up against each other? At the moment, she's two points ahead of him in, in opinion polls. But I think that's within the margin of error. Mm. Uh, Zamor is a is a very intelligent guy. He's a he's much better orator than Marine Le Pen. And you you may remember that five years ago, what really did for her was her very poor performance in the televised debate against Macron. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are sort of rubbing their hands and thinking, if only Zamor could make it to the runoff, because a, a debate between Zamor and Macron would be, you know, like gladiators and lions or something, and, and or lions and Christians. Yeah, and, and I've heard I've heard Laura many people saying that Zamor is, you know, French the French Trump, but he's far more what's the word cerebral than Trump. And then if he got into mm. that space, you just don't know um, how he might convince other people of his views. His views are very extreme. Mm. He, he's very Islamophobic, um, xenophobic. Uh, he wants to stop all immigration totally. Um, I, I know a young Moroccan woman who's a student, in, university student in Paris, and she was harassed uh, by, by young men in the street who said, in a, in a very good neighborhood, who said, uh, Zemmour is going to win and he's going to throw all of you out. Uh, and, and this is the sort of attitude that his supporters have. And some people, including Macron and his supporters, say that if Zamor won, it would mean a, a civil war in France or at least civil unrest in France. I, I, I think it would be a very poisonous atmosphere if he, if he won. But he has concentrated totally on those issues, on Islam, immigration, foreigners, uh, and, and, and that's that's pretty much it. Whereas Marine Le Pen, who has really softened her stance on, on just about everything in mm-hmm. recent years, she wants to be acceptable. She wants to be mainstream. She also has social programs. Um, she realizes that a lot of people, especially in the countryside, feel neglected, that they no longer have all, um, access to public services. And she wants to, for example, uh, lower the retirement age to 60 uh, she has a, a lot of social measures, which Zamor doesn't even seem to think about. So, Laura, just to, to wrap up, who are the candidates that you think will survive into the second round? And then I'm going to ask you the question, what odds would you give Macron on winning a second term? There are three candidates who are in a position to win the first round. I mean, Macron almost certainly will be one of the candidates who will come out of the first round. The other three who are coming up behind him are Valérie Bécresse, who's a mainstream conservative, although her rhetoric is very far right in this campaign. Mm. Marine Le Pen, who people will remember from the previous campaign, uh, who's far right. And Eric Zemmour, who is even further right. Mm. Uh, so Macron is very likely to face 
a right-wing or extreme right-wing candidate in the runoff on April 24th. Who will win? Uh, the polls show that Macron would win against any of the three of them. Valérie Pécresse would be the most difficult for him to defeat because, in a sense, she's most like him. She can appeal to centrist voters. Um, Zemmour would do the least well, according to polls. Again, and polls have sometimes been wrong because he's perceived to be so extreme uh, that, that he would do quite poorly against Macron. And uh, Marine Le Pen would, again, lose against Macron, according to polls. But we'll see. It's, it's really too early to tell. And we actually won't know until the night of, of April 24th. But I think that Macron's odds of being reelected are very high. Uh, I'm not a mathematician or a pollster, but I would say they're up in, in the 80, 80 percentile range, something like that. Well, they're amazing insights. That's Laura Marlowe, Paris correspondent of the Irish Times, sharing her insights and predictions about the French presidential election. Laura, thanks for joining us. And we really look forward to you coming back for your postmortem once all the votes are counted. Thank you, Mandy. You're welcome back. I'm joined now by Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and a communicator specialising in digital culture. Chris, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mandy. Chris, now you wrote an article in the Guardian newspaper this week and you said, quote, when World War Three comes, the nuclear bombs drop out of the sky and humanity is wiped from the earth. Two things will remain, cockroaches and NFTs. So please, can you start by explaining to us and enlightening me about what a non-fungible token actually is? Yeah, so a non-fungible token is perhaps the most popular buzzword in the world of technology at the minute. It's essentially a unit of data that is stored on a thing called a blockchain, which we'll get to in a second, Mandy, that can be either sold or traded for money. Now, a blockchain is essentially um, a database, a computer database, which has a unique property, which is that it is decentralized. So it's ideally owned by everybody that takes part in it. Now, that's the kind of infrastructure behind NFTs. NFTs that people come across in public are probably going to be bits of artwork. You might have seen headlines by artists like Beeple, where they've sold their artwork for $60 million or something crazy like that. So this is a new technology that is almost becoming a kind of investment for tech literate people who want to make a little bit of money. Now, I have read a lot about it. I think I understand it, but I just don't get it. Um, And one of the things I wanted to ask you was, who typically is buying these things and how much do they cost? Yeah, you're you're not alone in not understanding. I'll be honest, I'm a tech reporter. It's my job to keep across it. And sometimes I kind of scratch my head as well. Um, The people who are buying this are, are generally kind of proponents of the future of technology. And this is where... NFTs validity and um, the likelihood of their success kind of comes into question a little bit, Mandy, because there is a broader movement happening in technology right now called the Web3 movement, which is this idea of a future vision of the internet that is much more democratic than the ones that we have now. We're, we're in the middle of Web2 
by the the kind of definitions of these web three proponents and that means that we're in a world that is controlled by the likes of facebook who who got rebranded recently to meta instagram twitter tiktok all of these different platforms run by big silicon valley businesses Web3 is something slightly different. Web3 is kind of like the anarchic communism of that. But with that, there is this issue, which is whenever you have some revolutionary new idea, there are always people trying to make a quick buck out of it. And NFTs, there are lots of people who support them who are doing this for good. But then there are lots of people who are supporting it because they've realized it's the new trendy thing and they can make money out of it and they can make huge money out of it. We're talking sort of tens of billions of dollars of NFTs were traded last year, something like 44, 45 billion, um, which is huge. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at some of the figures and they're eye-watering and I suppose the acceleration of them is the thing that you could point to that 44 billion up from just $106 million the year before. So it really has taken off exponentially, hasn't it? It has. And I think that this is kind of what's really interesting about it. Very often we see technology being embraced very, very quickly, but we don't often see the speed and the pace accelerating. And what we're kind of seeing right now is the upward trend of NFTs. It's at a very early stage in its development. And with that, you kind of see the the friction and the disease around it as well. And sometimes you know, the ugly side of it rears its head as well. And is there anyone regulating this new form of business? No, this is the joy for those who support NFTs and the Web3 movement of the Web3 movement and NFTs. There aren't any people necessarily uh, overseeing this. Um, there are some sort of centralized platforms on which you can buy and sell and trade NFTs. One of them is called OpenSea. Um, it has some sort of regulatory capacity in the sense that you can't host racist or sexist or violent images on there without having them taken off. Although there are sometimes questions around how effectively that is moderated and enforced. But the whole point of NFTs is that it's meant to be kind of self-cleansing. Um, there is this idea that it is self-regulating and if something is inappropriate, well then the laws of interest will mean that it peters out. In reality, that can be quite dangerous. We often think of um, these these kind of utopian self-regulating visions uh, as being good, but then you know the harsh reality kind of comes and smacks us in the head. Well, they may be able to avoid regulation for a time, but what are revenue implications? Are there trading uh, implications liable to capital gains tax or anything like that, for example? There are, and yet the people who are involved in the NFT world often don't seem to recognize it because of that kind of uh, Robin Hood, democratic, mm. egalitarian background. We have started to see some significant movement in this. So uh, the US Finance Department recently warned those who own NFTs that they are expected to declare those on their tax bills at the end of every year. And we saw in the UK HMRC, which is the tax man over here, deciding to step in and sees sort of one and a half million pounds worth of NFTs from someone who was alleged to have uh, had some in, impropriety in terms of their finances. So 
we're starting to kind of again see this idea of um you know this amazing new future where you don't need rules mm. in the world of nfts and web3 banging up against kind of the old world where actually we say there are rules here for a reason and while you may not want to pay tax on these things you have to now you mentioned there chris one million pounds worth and this might be a fairly stupid or basic question but what does one million pounds worth of NFTs mean or look like? Because is that the non-fungible aspect of this where you can't equate it to some other form of currency that we'd be familiar with? Yeah, and this is kind of the thing. So those NFTs are um, transacted in generally a cryptocurrency, which mm. is a non-fiat currency. It's, it's you know, for, for those that are negative to this world, it's essentially made up and fictitious. Um What's interesting is that 1.4 million pounds accounts for just three NFTs, so three potential pieces of artwork. And, you know, I'm no art critic, and I'll admit that sometimes I stand in front of you know, paintings at a museum or in an art gallery, and I wonder quite what on earth is going on there. But you know, even I can see that sometimes NFTs aren't exactly Picasso's. Yeah, and it's very much tipping over into that world of high tech, you know, closed shop tech valley, Silicon Valley, and then big celebrities. And just when you thought footballers and their money couldn't get any more ridiculous, I saw a report that Neymar bought two of these for a combined total of, again, one million worth of Ether, which is part of that blockchain currency. Like, what does that mean? Has He made a big splash because he's got 55 million followers. Did he actually buy these? Are they used as marketing tools by big celebrities? Without meaning to disparage Neymar and without getting into legal trouble, um, it, there is the big question mark over a lot of these kind of celebrity endorsements. Neymar is not alone. John Terry, the former mm-hmm. England international footballer, he owns some NFTs. Paris Hilton owns NFTs. Gwyneth Paltrow owns NFTs. Rappers like Timberland and lots of other musicians also own NFTs. There are big question marks over whether or not they're stumping up their own money for this or whether or not someone somewhere is realizing that actually if you get a brand name endorsement from a big celebrity with millions of followers then it can encourage other people to buy in and it's a brilliant marketing technique for you and and this is kind of the big question over nfts as a journalist and someone who likes to have accountability for people there's been a big uh, controversy in the nft world in the last few weeks uh, one of the biggest collections which is called the board ape yacht club mm. um, was set up by a, a bunch of pseudonymous uh, founders people who didn't use their real names for months and months if not years of doing this they were recently unmasked with their real names and the nft world took that very very badly they actually called it doxing which is an internet term that means that you are kind of unveiling someone's identity against their will and it's often you know victims of crimes are doxed against their will uh, by sort of hate mobs and this term was used for the act of good investigative journalism so there is again this this kind of idea of accountability not necessarily being front and center for those in the nft world and you have to kind of wonder maybe why that's the case 
You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Chris Stokel-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and a communicator specialising in digital culture. Now, Chris, when I started reading up about this, I discovered that this has got a language all of its own, almost designed to keep people who don't know about it outside. It's like a code, a secret language. Did you find that? Yeah, and I think that that is deliberate. There is this idea of another term that maybe not all listeners will be conscious of, FOMO, fear of missing out. There's this kind of concept that um, if you have something that is cool and has its own kind of code and its own secret terminology, people look at it and go, well, what are they talking about? And why are they using those codes? What am I missing out on? I want why am in. I not? Yeah, I yeah want exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or that you want to ape in, to use one of the NFT uh, world's phrases. Aping in is getting involved very, very keenly in a particular NFT project. So I think it's kind of very deliberate that they're doing that, which is also one of the reasons why I, I sometimes wonder whether NFTs will have as big a promise as those who really support it hope it will, is because for all of those people who look at that and hear those terms and think, yeah, you know what, I'm missing out on something here. There are probably people like you and me who go, well, I just don't understand that. And I don't want to be part of that club if they're going to be that exclusionary. So once I buy one of these, whether it's a piece of art, whether it's a GIF or a video, so I own it. Um, How can I ensure that it's entirely bespoke for me and it won't be replicated? Well, you can't. And then also it's worth pointing out that you technically don't own it. Oh. You don't own the artwork. Right. You own the right to own the artwork. You own the point, the ledger on the blockchain that is connected to that artwork. And this is one of uh, the thing things that people who don't like NFTs and don't really buy into the concept of NFTs love to do. For those of us who maybe aren't necessarily au fait that much with technology. One of the common things that we maybe learn when we first adopt our laptops or our desktop computers is the idea of right-clicking on your mouse button on an image and then clicking save. Mm. Theoretically, you're stealing that person's artwork um, because there is a huge value to it. People pay hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars for that artwork using cryptocurrencies. That's entirely legal, though, because... The person that owns that NFT doesn't own that artwork necessarily. They own the connection on the blockchain. So there is advantage here for potential artists to reach out directly to people and actually have value in their work. That might be one really positive aspect to this. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is worth pointing out that you know artists are making huge amounts of money. I interviewed uh, someone who sells their artwork in order to create NFT projects through one of these kind of gig economy websites where you can hire people by the hour. And he makes an inordinately large amount of money. He makes sort of like $50,000 every single month just from creating these NFT collections. Um, So there are people who are making big money and sometimes they're doing art for art's sake, but other times the art is kind of churned out a little bit too industrially for many people's liking. Chris, have you heard about whitelisting? It it is about um, creating a hype um, and getting in early on a product so um, you can potentially get on a list uh, before it actually goes on sale to the general public. And and what I read was with enough hype, um, whitewhistling can mean paying a few hundred dollars for an NFT that can be sold for a few thousand dollars uh, just a couple of hours later. 
Yeah, so uh, whitelisting is one of these interesting concepts, and it's been used by big brands, including Budweiser, mm. actually, who, who did a NFT project of their own, where they they essentially require you to buy an NFT in order to buy an NFT. So you buy a lower value item. In this case, it was um, a, a picture of a Budweiser um, beer can in order to then earn the right to have sort of pre-access to buy a more expensive NFT, which was, a, in the case of Budweiser, a bunch of trading cards related to up-and-coming musicians. Um, it kind of hits on that idea of NFTs being a little bit exclusionary and being a little bit exclusive as well. But it, it's also interesting that they're kind of trying to constantly upsell you on things. You know, you, you have to... You're welcome to to buy an NFT, but then also we'll try and sell you a more expensive NFT because you own that one. And if somebody did want to take the plunge and get their foot in the door, where where do you start? So you have to, first of all, uh, open uh, a cryptocurrency wallet, which is the thing that you will use to buy an NFT with. So you deposit some real money into a cryptocurrency wallet that gets transferred into the cryptocurrency of your choice. And from there, you can go to any number of NFT marketplaces. We mentioned one of them earlier, which is OpenSea. And you can browse the artwork. If you see something that takes your interest, then feel free to spend your money. Although, personally, I probably wouldn't. Well, that leads me to my final question, Chris. What's your prediction? Is this just a fad or could it be something that in the future artists, as I said, use to reach out directly to their fans and followers? Do you see it being a long term investment potential? I personally wouldn't be putting any, if not much of my money into NFTs. And I think I probably wouldn't put any, if I'm honest, into NFTs. And it's largely because you know, the underlying technology behind it and the idea of democratizing access to artists is absolutely correct. It is true and you can do that. The issue is that this is a gold rush at the minute. It's a little bit of a wild west. And mm. there is this tension around as to whether or not those trying to make a quick buck are going to ruin it for everybody else. And actually, the short-term gains that they make are going to ruin the long-term potential for the technology. Okay, well, that's fascinating stuff. And you've certainly made me understand a whole lot more about it. That's Chris Stokel-Walker, freelance journalist and communicator specialising in digital culture. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome back. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, the Fair Trade Organisation says that there's a really simple way to make a big difference to the lives of people who grow and create things that we love. Its executive director in Ireland is Peter Gaynor, who joins me now at the beginning of a two-week campaign when Fair Trade seeks to let us know more about what it does and the value of that work. Peter, you're very welcome. Mandy, how are you doing? Thanks very much. Thanks now, for the opportunity. No problem. Now, Peter, before we start talking about Fair Trade Fortnite, can you tell us what exactly is Fair Trade and how does it work? Well, Fair Trade is basically, it's a bit like the you know, the guaranteed Irish uh, scheme. It's a scheme that uh, ensures that people in developing countries who produced a lot of the tropical commodities that we you know, enjoy at our breakfast tables and dinner tables uh, all year, you know, uh, and in our pockets, uh, things like fruits, things like chocolates, things like sweets, things like tea and coffee, that the primary producers of those commodities get a better deal. So we have a system that includes minimum prices and a premium for different products. 
uh, that goes back to the farmers' organisations or to the workers' organisations, that they invest themselves in what they choose uh, to invest in in terms of creating greater opportunities for themselves in their own context. So the idea is that people are poor a lot of the time, not because they don't do anything or produce anything, but because they get a tiny fraction, uh, which adds up to very little of the money uh, we pay for the goods that we're buying and that a lot of the money goes elsewhere along the supply chain to uh, you know to more powerful uh, players in the supply chains that's the approach that we try and ensure that the primary coffee farmers banana farmers get a better deal from the bananas and coffee that we buy from them and is it a big organization worldwide um how many people are employed by it here in ireland also in Ireland, we're tidy. I think we have, not I think, I know we have five people. Um, so it, we're a very small outfit, really. But the good thing about organisations like this in Ireland is that most charities and voluntary organisations uh, are able to achieve anything because ordinary Irish people support them. So we would have hundreds of supporters around the country, around the country in different counties, part of fair trade communities, uh, working with other organisations, who support fair trade, organise events locally. Obviously, things have been difficult for the last couple of years in Ireland in particular. This is actually the second year when we're having a virtual fortnight because we weren't aware that the thing would open up at the end of January. So everything we're doing, we're doing this year online again, as we did last year. But internationally, it's a bigger organisation. Obviously, I think there's uh, maybe 800 people working for fair trade in different countries, and that includes Europe and North America, in countries in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about Fair Trade Fortnight itself. What what is it? Well, this this year again, because it's a virtual event, we have webinars, seminars online where we have uh, the public are invited. Anybody who's interested uh, can go to fairtrade.ie and sign up to any of the 12 or 13 events that are currently there. We'll probably add more. We have a launch event tomorrow. Then on the next day, we have a What is Fair Trade? So it explains with some of the guests from the uh, countries like Honduras how the fair trade system worked for them. On Wednesday, we have a climate, the environment and fair trade session. Uh, one of the big things that's happening at the moment in terms of politics is the European Union is bringing in a very welcome uh, set of regulations about deforestation. So they're trying to get rid of uh, products that are linked to deforestation, which is a very good idea. But unfortunately, there are millions of small farmers, cocoa farmers and coffee farmers involved in farming in and around forests. And it's not at all clear how they're going to be supported to be able to steward the forests uh, near their lands. So we're asking the EU to think again about some of their proposals and to try and ensure that, that we can be fair to smallholder farmers and to the forests. We think obviously the deforestation piece is great, but we need to remember that some of the very poorest people who are living in and around forests. So we have events like that. We have events, uh, Women in Coffee, we have a, a, day, a day about biodiversity on the 3rd of March, uh, which is World Wildlife Day. Those events and others are they're on our website, fair, mm. website fairtrade.ie. So let's just talk about Ireland. How many Irish companies stock fair trade goods? Well, the thing began like 20 years, more than 20 years ago now, in Oxham shops and Trocra shops. And you can only buy fair trade things in charity shops. So over the, the last couple of decades, the thing has you know, taken root in commercial outlets. So the idea would be to work with as many companies as we can. 
in order to sell as much as we can to benefit to create the benefits that people in developing countries are looking for from fair trade. So we would have lots of coffee companies involved, people like Bewley's and Insomnia are involved. Uh, we'd have most of the banana suppliers. All of the retailers have some range of fair trade products. And you know, there's significant growth in some commodities like cocoa. So if you go into, say, a Lidl in particular, maybe there's an extraordinary range of chocolate products now that are fair trade. Um, this year, we're launching a new, a new startup company called Hearst Botanicals. It's bringing out a new kombucha. Uh, which is made from fair trade sugar and fair trade tea. Uh, so you know, we also have uh, lots of chocolates uh, in other in other retailers. Uh, companies like Bewley's uh, and others are also doing fair trade tea. So there's a good range. It's mostly tropical commodities. And if yeah. if Peter, a person is buying something in a shop and sees something yeah. with a fair trade sticker on it, what does it mean about that product? What it means is that a little bit more of the price of the value of the the goods that we're buying is getting back to the people who produce them. So it's you know it's not it's not a lot from each individual product, but it, Einstein said about the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. So if if thousands of us do it, and tens of thousands of us do it, and millions of us do it around the world, then those purchases add up to significant amounts of money. Uh, going back to people in developing countries. How does a company then go about getting a sticker for their product? How do you become a fair trade product? Well, the system is based on there being lists of uh, fair trade certified organisations in Uganda or in, in Nicaragua. So people can choose the, the countries they want to buy products like coffee or bananas from and they find groups of registered producers in those in those countries. They have to sign up themselves. They have to sign a license contract with an organisation like our own and then they have to buy on the fair trade terms for the commodity that they're interested in. Uh, and when they meet uh, those standards and uh, uh, and purchase their their commodities and their raw materials in those ways, then they can put the fair trade mark on the products that the consumer is seeing, either in the coffee shops or in the supermarkets. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Peter Gaynor, Executive Director at Fairtrade Ireland. So a very strict protocol and obviously with more people wanting to try and lead a more sustainable life, you're seeing more demand for these yeah. products. Do they have a premium price though? It can vary. They, you know, they can cost a bit more, they can cost a bit less. It can be the same. It really depends you know, on, on the product and where you're buying it. There isn't there isn't a kind of fixed price that goes with the market and the market decides. So, you know, if you shop in, you know, it depends where you shop. Peter, would you talk to me a little bit more about the farmers who are involved in this? Do yeah. they get better prices because they're part of fair trade? They do. So if you look at, say, um, bananas, there's an easy one, a box of bananas, an 18 kilo box of bananas that we buy or get shipped from, say, the Dominican Republic. Uh, there's an extra dollar that for that box of bananas that comes into Ireland. So that, that dollar goes back to people as a fair trade premium. And because most of our uh, bananas that we consume in the fair trade bananas in Ireland are organic as well as fair trade, there's an extra two dollars for the uh, uh, from fair trade as an organic premium that uh, per box that goes back to the farmers to help them to meet organic standards. So that that uh, amounts to three dollars a box that is part of the fair trade system that goes back to the farmers' organisations. 
and then they decide whether they need to bear we don't tell them how to spend it they can give the money as extra income to the farmers and you know, the farmers themselves decide or if they need to grow their grow their business or upgrade upskill their farmers train the farmers build roads they make those kind of decisions themselves on what's needed locally. Yeah, and, and they join up as a, a kind of cooperative, if you like. But what of the poorer or more remote farmers who can't um, organise to join up? Some can't afford the fees and still others then are working for larger producers who are excluded yeah. from the fair trade product. And so what I suppose what I'm asking here is does size exclude a lot of farmers who could actually do with the support of an ethical brand like yours? Well, I suppose it comes either way. It comes, there's two sides to that, Mandy. One is that um, you know, the poorest of the poor don't own any land and you know, they're in really difficult circumstances and they don't have anything um, to sell or to, you know, to trade and to trade in international markets. So we're not working with them. We're working with very poor people. I think if you look at cocoa in West Africa, people are earning, the majority of cocoa farmers in West Africa are earning between a dollar and two dollars a day, which which isn't a lot to live on. And we only work with small farmers in coffee and cocoa. Mm-hmm. And that's because if you look at coffee, 70% of the world's coffee is grown by, grown by smallholder coffee farmers. So we have our work cut out in trying to benefit those. And in relation to that, we think the bigger farmers are probably better able to look after themselves in mm. the marketplace than the small farmers are. Can I finish up by asking a slightly different question? What was your view of the COP26 conference last year? Um, I saw that they delayed a, a promise 100 billion annual funding to the most climate vulnerable countries until 2023. That must have been a disappointment to an organisation like yours, was it? I think it is a disappointment that it, it kind of doesn't augur well necessarily mm. for the, for what might be done around the deforestation issue. Like if we want to deal with climate change, if we want to maintain the forests in West Africa, tropical rainforests, people have to be able to survive and thrive from the things that they grow and sell to us. Uh, they need sustainable livelihoods for themselves and their families if they're going to be able to sustain their environments. So absolutely, the 100 billion that was delayed from 2022 to 2023 wasn't 100, you know, the 100 billion just it isn't welcome mm. that it would delay that long. And unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, it seems that uh, there are many promises made that aren't always carried through on. And that's why we're asking when with this new deforestation proposal that the, the EU in, in particular doesn't repeat that kind of thing where they say they'll look after small farmers but end up not putting the financial supports in place that they need. Well, you certainly have a busy fortnight ahead of you. That's Peter Gaynor, Executive Director from Fairtrade Ireland. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you found our topics today interesting and informative. And don't forget, we always welcome your views on topics that you would like us to cover. So please feel free to send in your suggestions to takingstock at newstalk.com. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. There are extended interviews with my guests in the podcast because we have a little bit more time. And I would like to thank all of my guests on today's programme for taking the time to talk to us and also to the production team of Simon Keane and Mick McCarthy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Manti Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.